Thank you for listening to audio from Gospel Community Church in Eugene, Oregon. For more information about our church or our Sunday services, please visit gccugene.org. Judges is one of the most violent and bloody books in the Bible. It is not a moral manual or a story about role models, but rather a tragic narrative about Israel's moral corruption and God's continued commitment to saving his people. The tragedy here lies in the overwhelming corruption and depravity of our human condition. Despite being loved and sought after by the king of all kings, Israel's cycle of rebellion remains unbroken. Israel rebels, God allows them to be conquered and oppressed. Israel cries out and repents. God sends a judge to deliver them. There would be an era of peace, but eventually Israel would sin and the cycle would start over. This is the rhythm of judges. God has called his people to be a holy people. And instead of remaining faithful to the law and showing all the other nations who God is and what he is like, they become no different from those who dishonor God. They did what was right in their own eyes. As time goes on, these judges, or rulers of the people, become more and more corrupt. When we define what is good, we hit rock bottom. The book ends with a phrase that is repeated four times. In those days, Israel had no king, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. They have no king, nobody to unite them and bring them out of their cycle of corruption. They need to be rescued. They need a king who can rescue them from themselves. The book of Judges not only points to King David, but points to our ultimate king, the one who can rescue us fully, Jesus. first want to introduce Brad. So Brad is a friend of mine, and he's also my hunting partner. And so we get to spend quite a bit of time in the woods together. I don't know where I'm going with that, man. <laughs> that sounded weird, and I'm butchering your introduction. Let me tell you better things about Brad. Brad graduated from Western Seminary uh, with his Master's of Divinity. Brad has been uh, a, a faithful pastor and leads a, a ministry in town called The Good Fight. Uh, Brad is a pastor at heart. You see that in the way that he cares for his bride, Jenna, who's with us today, his son, Riggs, but also the people that he pastors. And so I'm honored to have him as a guest. He's also took eighth place in the CrossFit, tournament, uh, in the CrossFit competition last week. So good, good job on that one too, Brad. In introducing him, I wanna introduce you to our family. And so here's what you can expect. Our people are gracious, but unless Jesus returns, you're probably not gonna get an amen out of them, okay? All right. That's what I'm used to. It's all yours. Well, thanks, Rick. Um, a quick story about, I gotta tell a story about Rick. So uh, this last week, uh, Rick and I got invited to go on this kind of like pastoral retreat to Montana. We were in Fort Smith and we got to fly fish the Bighorn River which is the dream uh, for a couple of hunting partners uh, who spend a lot of time in the woods together. And as, as good as a hunter as Rick is, uh, you might be wondering about his fishing ability. And Rick did have the most impressive catch on the entire trip. Uh, it just wasn't a fish. <laughs> um, Rick thought he had a fish, and he set the hook aggressively, as you would imagine Rick would, and the fly came out of the water and straight into the neck of his fishing guide. 
Um, yeah. Uh, like barbs and everything just in there. The, they just had to cut the line and the guy rocked uh, some body jewelry for the rest of the trip. And they got back and Rick wanted so badly to pull this hook out of this guy's neck. And he convinced the, the guy who had the hook in his neck that he was a doctor. And I quote, uh, like Dr. Pepper and Dr. Dre are doctors. And so your fearless leader, Rick, uh, yanked this barbed hook out of this poor kid's neck. Um, and he was fine, it was great. A little, bit, a little bit of blood, a lot of blood, um, but he's fine. Uh, uh, what Rick lacks in his fishing ability, he made up for in his cornhole skills. I think he was undefeated on the week. He beat me many times. Uh, unfortunately, Rick, cornhole is not going to feed you for your lifetime, so great. Um, <laughs> some of you got that. Teach a man to fish. Okay. Um, I'm super honored to be here. I know how valuable the, this pulpit and the preaching of the word here is at GCC, and so I'm honored to be asked to do that with you all this morning uh, and to get to preach. Uh, I'm going to open this up in a word of prayer, and then we'll, we'll jump into the book of Judges. Father, thank you for this morning, and thank you uh, for this church. God, thank you for the, the gospel work that is happening here. Thank you for the lives that have been changed by your spirit and your power. Thank you for the lives that are going to be changed. Uh, here in this church. Thank you for uh, your love for us, and that, um, as has been said so many times already this morning, there's nothing we can do to earn or deserve that love. God, you've given it to us freely. Uh, you, you've made a way for us to be in relationship with you for eternity through your son and his life, death, and resurrection. So God, I pray that this morning that truth uh, and that truth alone uh, would be what permeates everything that happens here, that it would be what comes out of my mouth as I preach, uh, and would be just embedded in the hearts of all of those in this room this morning. God, I trust that you have everyone here for a reason. No one is here by random chance or accident. So whatever is going on uh, in our lives, God, I pray that you would meet us where we're at, that you would uh, speak truth to us where we're believing lies, that you would encourage us where we're discouraged, uh, that you would uh, challenge us where we need to be challenged, but that God, at the end of the day, at the end of this morning, you and you alone would be glorified. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, so if you have a Bible, you can open it up to the book of Judges, and Judges chapter 10 is where we're going to start. Um, if you've been, I think there's a sermon or a series title, this series in Judges that you guys are going through is, Trust Me, I Know I'm Right, and I think you did that on purpose, spelled it wrong, I hope so. No, you guys spelled it wrong on purpose because the idea is that when we do what is right in our own eyes, uh, we mess things up. When we say, trust me, I know what is good, I know what is evil, I know what is right, I know what is wrong, we make a mess of things. And this is what continually happens in the book of Judges, as we saw in that, uh, that video that's really well done. So we're going to be in Judges chapter 10, and we're going to look at the story of a man who uh, is saying, trust me, I know I'm right, when in reality he has a lot of things wrong. Um, but first I want to ask a question. Have you ever done something that you shouldn't have in order to win or somehow get ahead or advance or progress in life? Have you ever, ever done something that maybe was unconventional, wrong, uh, just so that you could win in some way. I remember the first time that I cheated in school uh, was in second grade, uh, and it was a spelling test. Y'all remember spelling tests? Um, you guys remember spelling tests? Um, uh, and in second grade, Mrs. Hunt's class, and we had those desks that had like the opening and the 
the answers that I should have studied beforehand were in there and as inconspicuously as a second grader can, you know, pull it out and then fill out the answers. But I was a, that kid that I did not get in trouble often. I was afraid of getting in trouble. So I got home from school that day. I had been a wreck all day after cheating on this test. And my mom picks me up from the bus and she's like, honey, how was school? And then just waterworks, just I cheated on my test. I told on myself that I cheated. And the next day went back and had to tell Mrs. Hunt and she let me retake the test and it was all fine. Uh, maybe you've done something like that. Maybe you've cheated on a test or an assignment. Um, maybe you keep a draw four card stored in your pocket when you're playing Uno, just in case you like need to win at the end. Maybe some extra Monopoly money up your sleeve. Now, if we're honest, we all have this tendency to win at all costs. Uh, and maybe not win in a competitive game sport kind of sense, but this tendency to get ahead. This, this self-seeking, self-centered desire to be the best and to, to, to achieve something for ourselves. And sometimes we'll take uh, drastic or unconventional measures to get there. The Olympics are going on right now. And every four years or five this, this time around, uh, when the Olympics come, uh, there's headlines about athletes and teams and nations that get caught taking performance-enhancing drugs, right? Sometimes entire countries get banned from the Olympics because they were caught doping. They are caught taking performance-enhancing drugs. These are the best athletes on the planet that are doing something illegal just to try to get that extra edge, just to try to get ahead. Thinking, not thinking about the consequences and how that will look for their country or even their own image, but doing whatever it takes to just get ahead a little bit. And so where does this come from? Where does this desire, this self-seeking, self-promoting, self-motivated desire to get ahead at all costs, where does it come from? Why do we have this tendency? The Bible would tell us that these selfish tendencies, these, this internal self-seeking motivation for what we do and who we are in life, comes from idolatry. Idolatry is the worship of anyone or anything other than the one true God. And this is what happens when, when we have idolatry. You see, we were created with needs deep-seated human needs that everyone has, the need to belong, the need to have identity, the need to have purpose and meaning and, and security and, and community and family. We have these needs, and the only one who can satisfy those needs is the God who gave them to us in the first place. But when we don't worship him, we start looking to satisfy those needs elsewhere, but they never get satisfied. And so in our idolatry, in our worship of anything or anyone other than the one true God, we start to try ourselves to satisfy these needs. We try to make a name for ourselves. We try to accomplish things for ourselves. We try to be somebody and do something under our own volition and in our own power. But it's never enough. And so we keep striving and trying and doing whatever we can to fill up what is lacking in our soul. Idolatry is, it's the point of Judges. It's the underlying issue uh, throughout the book of Judges. The, God's people uh, are supposed to be worshiping him as the one true God. And time and time again, they turn to the gods of the surrounding nations and worship false gods. Israel was supposed to be a light to the nation, as a, or a light to the nations. As Israel was brought into the promised land by God, it was their mission to be a holy priesthood, a, 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 a royal priesthood, a kingdom of priests that were to bring God's truth to the world around them. They were supposed to influence their, their neighbors, but what happens is their neighbors influence them. 
And as you progress through the book of Judges, you see the canonization of Israel. They become more like the people around them rather than the people around them becoming like them as was supposed to happen. And so we get this cycle, this judges cycle where the people sin, do evil what is in the sight of the Lord, and they worship false gods. The Lord sells them, into, or sells them to other nations who oppress them for a time. They cry out. God raises up a deliverer, a judge, think military leader, a ruler, not like a, a judge like we would have in, in, in our time. This judge rescues them, delivers them, and then there's peace in the land for a little bit until it happens again. And in Judges 10, this is what we see. This is how things start. So I'm going to read Judges 10, verses 6 through 7 to kind of set the stage here. It says, Then the Israelites did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They worshipped the Baals and the Asheroths, the gods of Aram, Sidon, and Moab, and the gods of the Ammonites and the Philistines. They abandoned the Lord and did not worship him. So the Lord's anger burned against Israel, and he sold them to the Philistines and the Ammonites. We have the same thing that has been happening time, happening time and time again throughout the book of the Judges. The, the Israelites do what is evil in the sight of the Lord. They worship false gods. God gets righteously and justly angry. He sells them to the surrounding nations, and they're oppressed. This time, they're oppressed by, on, the, on the west by the Philistines and on the east by the Ammonites, and they cry out. But even in their crying out, if you just look right below this, they cry out in a selfish way. They want God to save them, but they don't want to worship him. And so God says, not this time. Why don't you cry out to the gods you've been worshiping and see if they can deliver you? This gets the Israelites' attention. They change their heart and their mind a little bit, and they come back with true repentance and say, okay, God, save us. And then they get rid of their idols. They get rid of the worship of false gods, and they worship the one true God. And so God becomes weary of their trouble. He recognizes their pain. And ch chapter 10 ends with a question. If you look at verses 17 and 18, it says the Ammonites were called together and they camped in Gilead. So the Israelites assembled and camped at Mizpah. The rulers of Gilead said to one another, which man will begin the fight against the Ammonites? He will be the leader of all the inhabitants of Gilead. So the question is, who is going to lead them to battle? Who is going to lead them against the Ammonites in war? And chapter 11 gives us the answer. We'll read 1 through 3 of chapter 11. Jephthah, the Gileadite, was a valiant warrior, but he was the son of a prostitute. And Gilead was his father. Gilead's wife bore him sons, and when they grew up, they drove Jephthah out and said to him, You will have no inheritance in our father's family, because you are the son of another woman. So Jephthah fled from his brothers and lived in the land of Tob. Then some worthless men joined Jephthah and went on raids with him. So we're introduced to Jephthah. The answer of the question, who will lead us? And here is this man uh, who was the son of a, his father who slept with a prostitute. And here comes Jephthah. And so he's an illegitimate child born of scandalous circumstances. The true legitimate sons of his father uh, and his father's wife eventually grow up and say, because of your illegitimacy, we actually don't want you here. And so they drive him out of the family, they drive him out of town, and he goes and lives in another nation. 
and this other nation. He gathers kind of this group of, of worthless people, of misfits and scoundrels, and essentially they're a group of land pirates. And Jephthah is the leader. And they go on raids, and he earns a reputation for being a valiant and mighty warrior. What we're going to see, though, as we continue is that Jephthah uh, is an individual picture, kind of this microcosm of what is going on in the corporate reality of Israel. Jephthah does not know the one true God. He knows about him. He's familiar with who God is, but he does not know him. And in his idolatry, he tries to fill up what is lacking in his soul by attempting to win, get ahead at all costs, even if it means devastation to those around him. There's three specific areas that he tries to win and get on top. Three specific things that Jephthah pursues throughout this story in an attempt to provide what only God can provide. He pursues status, success, and security. And we're going to look at each of those in turn as we work through the rest of the story. So Judges 11, verse 4. We'll read a bigger chunk here. So sometime later, the Ammonites fought against Israel. When the Ammonites made war with Israel, the elders of Gilead went to get Jephthah from the land of Tob. They said to him, come, be our commander, and let's fight the Ammonites. Jephthah replied to the elders of Gilead, didn't you hate me and drive me out of my father's family? Why then have you come to me now when you are in trouble? They answered Jephthah, that's true. But now we turn to you. Come with us, fight the Ammonites, and you will become leader of all the inhabitants of Gilead. So Jephthah said to them, if you're bringing me back to fight the Ammonites and the Lord gives them to me, I will be your leader. The elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, the Lord is our witness if we don't do as you say. So Jephthah went with the elders of Gilead. The people people made him their leader and commander. And Jephthah repeated all his terms in the presence of the Lord at Mizpah. Jephthah's story is a classic rags to riches story. He's the rejected, uh, illegitimate child who is driven out and then eventually is approached to come back and be the leader and lead them into battle. But Jephthah does some negotiating here, and it's subtle, and you might have missed it. He negotiates a higher position than was originally offered. At first, the elders come to him and say, be our commander. And this is, this is a word that would have referred to a military commander, a military leader. They just wanted him to come lead them into battle. And he says, no, no, like, you guys already drove me out. I don't want anything to do with that. And so they come back to him and they say, what if you come be our leader? It's a different word, commander and leader. Commander is leading the military. Leader is leading the nation. Uh, If you're in the ESV uh, or other translations might say head, it's it's more like a kingly position than just the military commander. And after the negotiation works and Jephthah gets this higher position, this higher status, he says, okay, I'll come back if I can be your leader. And it says they make him both leader and commander. Jephthah wants status. And status is something we pursue as well. Uh, we, want to, we all want to be somebody. We all want an identity. Uh, we want to be known as someone. We want to be someone known. And so we chase down status sometimes at all costs. Uh, You might be pursuing status if your value is determined by how many Instagram followers you have or how many likes you get on a picture of yourself. Maybe it's not just Instagram followers, but friends in life. Maybe it's how wealthy those friends are. Maybe it's how many kind of who's who parties you get invited to. How many people know you when you go out to dinner in town? One way to know if you're pursuing status 
uh, is that if any threat against that status becomes a personal attack and you get personally offended. This happens to Jephthah in Judges 11, 12. Uh, he becomes their leader and commander, and then he starts engaging in diplomacy with the Ammonites. And he starts out like this. Jephthah sent messengers to the king of the Ammonites asking, what do you have against me that you have come to fight me in my land? And then he goes through these different arguments. It, it, the, the Ammonites have this land dispute. They think that the Israelites took land from them. And so he negotiates all this historical stuff about, well, no, we actually took land from these people and everything. And he ends like this in verse 27. I have not sinned against you, but you are doing me wrong by fighting against me. Let the Lord, who is the judge, decide today between the Israelites and the Ammonites. So there's a foreign army that is coming to fight over a dispute over who owns different parts of land. And Jephthah cannot help but make this all about himself. You're coming to fight against me. This is my land. I haven't done anything against you, and yet you want to fight me. So are you personally offended when your status or position is threatened. Uh, when a friend becomes more popular than you, do you take it personally and start to secretly loathe that friend? When a coworker, a new coworker at work, uh, maybe they have some potential and you could see in their future them taking over your job and getting, booting you out, you start to get bitter and grow angry towards this person because your status and your position is threatened. If you get personally offended when your status is threatened, then it's a, there's a good chance you could be pursuing that to fill up something in you that only God can. Jephthah's diplomacy fails, and so they prepare for war. And in Jephthah's preparation, we're going to see his pursuit of the second thing, success. And this time that pursuit is costly. I'm going to read Judges 11, 29 through 37. And it's a big chunk, but this is like the core of the story. Uh, and the Bible tells it better than I would. So follow along with me. It says, The Spirit of the Lord came on Jephthah, who traveled through Gilead and Manasseh, and then through Mizpah of Gilead. He crossed over to the Ammonites from Mizpah of Gilead. Jephthah made this vow to the Lord. If you, in fact, hand over the Ammonites to me, Whoever comes out the doors of my house to greet me when I return safely from the Ammonites will belong to the Lord, and I will offer that person as a burnt offering. Uh, skip down to 34. Jephthah wins, and he returns home. When Jephthah went to his home in Mizpah, there was his daughter coming out to meet him with tambourines and dancing. She was his only child. He had no other son or daughter besides her. When he saw her, he tore his clothes and said, No, not my daughter. You have devastated me. You have brought great misery on me. I have given my word to the Lord and cannot take it back. Then she said to him, My father, you have given your word to the Lord. Do to me as you have said, for the Lord brought vengeance on your enemies, the Ammonites. She also said to her father, Let me do this one thing. Let me wander two months through the mountains with my friends to mourn my virginity. Uh, her father, Jephthah, allows that, and she leaves for a couple months with her friends to wander the mountains and mourn uh, for her virginity. And it says when he comes back, when she comes back, Jephthah fulfilled everything in the vow that he made. So this is arguably one of the more difficult passages in the Bible to read and then to try to understand what's going on. 
I was a religious studies major at the U of O, and whenever I tell people that, they're like, whoa, that had to have been interesting. I say, yes, it was interesting. Um, I had professors that taught on Christianity that made every attempt to poke holes in Christianity. And there's kind of those passages in the Bible that people who, who want to uh, make claims against the Bible love to point out. And people who know their Bibles well and know this one, though it's a little more obscure, like to talk about this one. Why in the world would God allow this person, Jephthah, to sacrifice his own child, his own daughter? So how do we understand this passage? First, we need to say what it is not. It is not God condoning uh, child sacrifice. It's not God accepting this. It's not God approving this. There is absolutely nothing in this passage or in the rest of Scripture that would indicate God is in any way pleased with or requires child sacrifice. Okay, from his people. God was going to deliver his people regardless of if Jephthah made this vow or not. God's salvation is not based on what we do or don't do. It's based solely on his sovereign and divine will. Jephthah's his vow and what he does after the vow does not determine what God is going to do. It's not that. What it is is an example of a person, Jephthah, who is representative of a people, the Israelites, who do not know God, who know about him, who can argue about land disputes and when the, where the Israelites came at, when they went as they came out of Egypt, but have no concept of who this God really is. Jephthah and the Israelites have allowed the surrounding culture to redefine God instead of letting God define himself. Jephthah has such a skewed view of God that he has mistaken him for the gods of the surrounding nations who would have demanded child sacrifice. And to be clear, human sacrifice is what is happening here. Um, you notice I'm reading out of the CSB. You guys have ESV on the screen. Um, and I read the words, whoever comes out of the house, I will sacrifice that person. In the ESV, it says whatever and um, and, uh, and it doesn't say that person, but whatever comes out of the house. Uh, but you might have a little footnote there that then takes you down to the bottom of your page that says whoever and him or whoever, the, that person. It's personal language. Uh, Jephthah has in mind here human sacrifice. It, it, he, it, uh, an animal would not have come out of his house to greet him in the way that it talks about uh, when he comes back from battle. He's surprised that it's his daughter, so he likely had one of his many servants in mind when he was making this vow. That God would be pleased and satisfied, and he could somehow manipulate God into doing what he would want if he would offer up a human sacrifice like the nations around him would do. Uh, some uh, in, in recent years, commentators have tried to soften this and say, well, maybe he didn't actually kill his daughter, um, but he just... Uh, devoted her to the Lord, or, or, or the, the sacrifice was perpetual virginity. She, she couldn't marry anyone. She couldn't have kids, but this is also highly unlikely. The, the, the term whole burnt offering that is used here is never once in the Bible used as a metaphor for any kind of devotion to the Lord or perpetual virginity or anything like that. What is, what is happening, what Jephthah has in mind, what the story says is that he, he vows to sacrifice whoever comes out of his house, and it happens to be his daughter. 
Uh, the mourning for virginity in, in, the, in the ancient Hebrew culture and a lot of the surrounding cultures, we see uh, childbearing as a sign of honor, that if, if, if a woman were to die not of having any kids, then that would have, she would have died with kind of an unfulfilled life. On top of that, she's Jephthah's only child. And so his line, his family lineage is cut off with the death of his daughter. And so there's a couple things going on there that is, that is reason for the attention drawn to her mourning over the fact that she has no husband or no kids. So what do we, what do, we do with this? What can we learn from a, a story as horrific as this in our Bibles? I think there's two things, at least two things. The first is that we probably let culture define God for us more than we realize. If we are not actively fighting to let God define who he is for us, then the culture will seep in in ways that we don't realize, and we will start to get a picture of God that is actually nothing like who he really is. So to, to fight against this, we need to, uh, we need to know God based on who he has told us he is. And he's done that in his word, in the Bible. This is God's specific and special revelation of himself to us. And so if we are not people who live in this book, who live in the gospel, who are constantly immersed in who God has told us he is, we will be swayed by the culture and our view of God will start to change. We conform to the world rather than being transformed by the renewal of our mind. And so live in this book, immerse yourself in it and fight against the ways that culture will try to change our view of God. The second thing I think we can learn from a passage like this is that we as humans are willing to go to great lengths in order to succeed. Jephthah was so set on winning, so set on being victorious in battle, so set on being successful that he was doing whatever it, he was willing to do whatever it took, even if it meant taking someone's life. Now, we might think that in our culture, in our world, in our time, we would never do anything as horrible. Um, and yeah, we're not, hopefully, we're not offering children up as burnt offerings. But think about this. How many friends have you cut out from your life and sacrificed on the altar of success because they weren't helping you get to where you need to go? How many employees or coworkers have you mistreated and sacrificed on the altar of success because they weren't moving the company in the right direction? What about your spouse or kids? Neglected as you pursue career goals and aspirations, sacrificed on the altar of success. Family that you've labeled as toxic obstacles to your dreams rather than broken people to be loved and sacrificed on the altar of success. We might live in a, a different time, thousands of years apart from Jephthah. We might have gods that are not named Baal and Molech and Shemosh, but we have the same idolatry. And we have the same sinful response to this idolatry to pursue success at all costs, even if it means hurting the people around us. Success can look like a lot of different things. There can be success in career, in school, fitness, the ideal family life, your finances, finally making it to the upscale neighborhood or the certain size house. We want status because we want to be somebody. And we want success because we want to do something. We want purpose. We want meaning, accomplishments. Because if we do something of value, then we will have value. And so our idolatry causes us to pursue success, oftentimes at great, great cost to those around us. The third thing Jephthah pursues is security. 
after the battle with the Ammonites is over, after the, the story of the, the sacrifice of his daughter, uh, the Ephraimites come to town. If you remember the Ephraimites, they came up in the story of Gideon. We've seen them a few times in Judges. They're fellow Israelites. It's just another tribe of Israelites. They're, they're, they're supposed to be the same people. And the Ephraimites show up, and they're all mad at Jephthah that they didn't invite, uh, he didn't invite them to come fight the Ammonites with them. They missed out on the fun. And so they come and they, they, uh, they, they say, Jephthah, we're going to burn your house with you in it. We're, we're mad because you didn't invite us to come fight with you. And this is how Jephthah responds in Judges chapter 12, verses 2 and 3. It says, Then Jephthah said to them, the Ephraimites, My people and I had a bitter conflict with the Ammonites, so I called for you, but you didn't deliver me from their power. When I saw that you weren't going to deliver me, I took my life in my own hands and crossed over to the Ammonites. And the Lord handed them over to me. Why then have you come today to fight against me? You remember from his diplomacy with the Ammonites, he keeps using personal pronouns. It's me. It's my fight. You're fighting against me. You have issues with me. Uh, When the Ephraimites come and do a similar thing with Gideon earlier in Judges, Gideon uses diplomacy and settles the dispute peacefully with no bloodshed. It's not the case here. Jephthah skips the diplomacy and goes right to war, and they defeat the Ephraimites. Civil war, fighting among their own people, the people that were supposed to be a unified people of God to be a light to the nations, start warring against one another. After the the battle is over, so the, the Gileadites would have been on one side of the Jordan River, the Ephraimites on the other. And for, in order for the Ephraimites to get back to their homeland, they had to cross the Jordan River at these designated fords. The Gileadites capture these fords, and then when someone wants to cross, they say, are you an Ephraimite? And if they say no, then they say, say the word Shibboleth. And if they say Sibboleth, then they're an Ephraimite and they kill them. And the text says that they slaughtered 42,000 people that way. So there's dialect differences. I I have family from South Dakota, but they say South Dakota. And so there's different parts of the the country where, you know, different dialects indicate you're from a different. So they knew that if they couldn't pronounce this certain word a certain way, they were an Ephraimite and they use it to kill 42,000 Ephraimites. Jephthah becomes threatened by his own people. Uh, He becomes, his status, his position becomes threatened. His success in battle becomes threatened. And so to protect his security, he starts slaughtering his own people. Civil war and senseless killing. See, we want to be somebody, we want to do something, and we want to be safe. We want to be protected, we want to be secure. And sometimes we will do whatever it takes to gain or maintain security, even if it leaves a pile of bodies in our wake. Have you ever been defensive when a friend tries to point out sin in your life? Lashed out because your security was threatened. Have you ever lashed out at people when things are out of your control? Because when you're in control, you're safe. When you're not, you're not. You can't guarantee your safety. Have you ever lied to people close to you? Built a false narrative around who you are to protect yourself from others knowing things about you that are shameful or embarrassing. You see, we want to be safe and secure, even if it means compromising the safety and security of the people around us. The status, success, and security. 
We all want to be somebody, we all want to do something, and we want to be safe. And when we don't worship God, it's up to us. We have to do it ourselves. How far are you willing to go? What are you willing to do to gain status, success, and security? And a second question is what happens when you don't? Because inevitably, your efforts on your own, our efforts on our own, will never gain enough. And you'll always be left wanting. Uh, This story concludes in Judges chapter 12, verse 7. I'm just going to read one verse. Jephthah judged Israel six years, and when he died, he was buried in one of the cities of Gilead. If you recall earlier in Judges, when they kind of give a recap of the judges' tenure, usually it's a lot longer than six years. The irony is that Jephthah's status and success doesn't last. But there's also this other tagline, usually at the end of their reign, where it says there was peace in the land for a certain number of years. That's not part of Jephthah's reign. When Jephthah is judging Israel, doing what is right in his own eyes, and trying to make for himself what he's not trusting God for, there is no peace in the land. And when we do the same, there's no peace in our hearts. We we become so self-absorbed and self-consumed with making a name for ourselves and accomplishing things for ourselves and trying to be somebody and do something to stay safe in the process. And it's this never-ending battle, this never-ending cycle that just keeps looping, and it only brings chaos and turmoil and an unsettled heart. Never any peace. So what do we do? Remember, the root of all of this is idolatry. And so the solution is not to stop pursuing these things, but to start worshiping God. Worship the one true God, the same God who kept delivering the Israelites and one day would raise up a perfect deliverer, a better judge, a better Jephthah, a better Gideon, a better Samson, Jesus. Jesus, who was born under scandalous circumstances. Jesus, who was driven out of his hometown by his people, who collected a group of misfits and worthless people around him, was given a mission to deliver God's people, and who did not secure victory by sacrificing those around him, but who gave up his own life as God's only child to secure victory in the battle. Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, took the form of a servant and a human, Jesus who gave up his status at the right hand of God to become a man, to become a human, to become part of his creation, his sinful, broken creation that wanted nothing to do with him, to live a perfect and righteous life that you and I never could. Jesus who saw success as weakness and servanthood, who never jockeyed for a better position for himself, but was always lifting people up, was always elevating and raising up those around him who served when he got nothing in return. And Jesus, who gave up his own security and safety to be crucified and killed for the sins of the world. Jesus, who went to the cross to bear our sin and shame, to put on him everything that we have done wrong, our failures, our mistakes, our sin, our idolatry, the people we have hurt in the process, he bore it all. He paid the price for it. God's wrath and justice is satisfied. And he rose from the grave and offers all who come to him new eternal life. 
It is not until we worship Jesus. It is not until we align ourselves with him. It is not until we give him our allegiance, our devotion, our life that we will have peace. It is not until we give our life to the one who didn't manipulate and negotiate a higher position for himself, but negotiated a higher position for you and me through his shed blood and broken body on the cross. Because when, when we worship Jesus, when we come to him, when we rest and, and come to him, we're given status. Status as sons and daughters of God, as saints, as holy, as perfect, as righteous people. We're given success. Not in the world's sense of success as a, a bigger bank account and a better paying job and a nicer house, but a completely imperfect righteous life that Jesus gives to us for free. And we're given security, an eternal inheritance where nothing, not height, nor depth, nor angels, nor demons, or things in heaven, or things on earth, no, nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ. The status, success, and security you try to earn or gain or, or achieve for yourself will never, will never be enough. So for the first time this morning, if you're here exploring the claims of Christianity, or for the hundredth time, choose this morning to worship Jesus. To align maybe for the first time or to realign for the hundredth time your heart to his. Stop pursuing and striving for status and success and security no matter the cost, and start resting in the status, success, and security that cost Jesus his life and is available to you free. In the gospel, there is grace to forgive. Forgive us for our idolatry. Forgive us for the times we've sacrificed those around us on the altars of status, success, and security. In the gospel, there's also grace to empower us, to live like Christ, to lay down our lives for the good of others, to give up our status, our success, and security in order to lift others up. So my hope my prayer is that your church community, my church community, church communities around you, in Eugene and around the world would not be a group of isolated individuals that do whatever it takes to rise to the top, but a family of committed, united Christ followers who, who show Christ-like love and service to one another, who cast aside your selfish desires and ambitions in order to lift each other up who don't manipulate and negotiate higher positions for yourself and negotiate higher positions for one another. But it all starts with worship. There's a throne and a cross in everyone's heart. And you're either on the throne and Jesus is on the cross or Jesus is on the throne and you're on the cross. And so my hope and my prayer today is that every single one of us We'll put Jesus on the throne where he belongs and that we all would take up our cross, deny ourselves and follow him. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you love us. Thank you that because of Jesus, we have a better status than we could ever gain for ourselves. We have more success than we could ever achieve on our own, and we have a greater security than we could ever make for ourselves. God, I pray that everyone here this morning would choose to worship you, 
that we would lay aside false gods and idols and anything that we've put our hope in to provide for us what we so desperately need, that we would look to you. Help us to stop striving, stop pursuing, stop fighting and scratching and clawing to get ourselves to the top and help us to rest in what you've provided for us through Jesus. God, we love you and we thank you. Help us now to sing and worship you in spirit and truth. It is in Jesus' name, amen.